to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And a word of prayer as we kind of look at this story and understand God's heart for us, our heart response. Jesus, as we've sung this evening, we gathered here, We've sung of our love, your face. We've looked into your face. You're beautiful. We think of who you are. As well as all that you've done for us. We are, we're captured by you. And we pray your spirit would capture us afresh. Lord, we, we want to offer you our, as much as our minds as we listen and engage and wrestle with scripture, we want to offer our hearts to you this evening. Continue to do that, Lord that our hearts would be captured by you. So teach us, inspire us, release us this evening, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Get giving, generosity, and giving within the context of that. It's interesting, just one has to note that of all the teaching that Jesus offers on the kingdom of God recorded in the Gospels, almost a quarter of it revolves around money. So um, uh, I want to sort of caveat a little bit of what I'm saying, um, which is that we don't speak overtly about uh, money nearly as much as Jesus did here as a church. That is to say, if you aren't, I didn't see people visiting or here for the first time, um, please don't worry, you think, oh, I'm not coming back here again, all they ever do is talk about money, or the kind of caricature that church is always just after your money. Uh, I promise you that isn't true here. Uh, We're much more interested, our vision is to live life to the full. Our mission here is, as you'll see from that pack, is to grow mission-minded disciples, to live for Jesus wherever they are. Uh, So personally, Pat and I, the team here, we love it when we gather together, but that's not what we're about. It isn't about this. We only gather here like ships in a harbour to be fitted out and and equipped, the sails checked, more provisions on board, so that we can do what God called us to do, which is to set sail. That's that's the the vision of our mission, to, to go. And uh, it just in order that that goes healthily and well, then, then giving as part of our whole life relationship. I'll come on to that in a, in a, in a moment. Uh, and, and money does resource what we're doing here. So it's useful. 
it's helpful for us as a PCC and a leadership to have an idea of what the revenue is, what's the income, so that we can budget accordingly. We can prayerfully apportion as much as we can to sponsor the mission of the church. But frankly, that's all I really want to say about money and giving in church this evening. <laughs> uh, there's an opportunity to respond at the end. But that, that's all I want to say. So if you're here for the first time, that's pretty much all I am going to say. Although I do want to speak about generosity linked to get giving. If you are a regular here and you give in all sorts of ways, your time, your talent, your creativity, your imagination, uh, just yourself in all sorts of ways, I want to say, as we did at the APCM, and I hope we will continue to say, thank you, thank you, thank you. I just think about, and I know Pat spoke about this last week, I wasn't, I wasn't here, I was just on a break, uh, but I kind of came in and I saw Pat's notes on the, I came in the midweek, saw his notes there. I thought, oh, it's Pat's notes, and I started to read the thing. Oh, that's a good point. I love that quote. That's I got my phone out, just snapped a few pics, and I'll keep them for later. Probably rehash that in six months' time. <laughs> it was great. I know, I read it, I thought, well, that's fantastic. Uh, and it, it's, it's, the, it's the, the kind of vision for church and the, the, to get involved, to be a community and to make a difference for God in our lives. I want to talk about um, generosity in the context of all of that. So here's this story. Luke 18 and verse 9. These um, two guys, a Pharisee and a tax collector, and they go to pray at the temple. And I want to kind of sort of unredact the story because um, maybe you've, uh, you've read this a few times or you're familiar with this story in some way. It's, it's, um, it's not an unfamiliar story of Jesus. And uh, we've got slightly used to caricaturing the two characters. Um, we're used to, and, and as I've read it now, you've jumped to the end, you know the ending. So you know that the tax collector ends up the good guy. And also, just over the centuries of um, Christian and church history and teaching, we kind of know that the Pharisees are the bad guy. You know, we, we wouldn't want to be called a Pharisee. In fact, sort of to describe someone as Pharisaical is it's a kind of a little bit of an insult. So, um, sort of subversively, the, the tax collector is the good guy, and sort of interestingly, the Pharisee is the bad guy. So we need to kind of try and just go back through the centuries to hear this story when Jesus was actually telling it. Don't underestimate just how bad the tax collectors were. I think we've, uh, I, know, I remember hearing Pat teach on this, but, uh, and I may have done too, but it's worth just remembering that the Roman Empire was a massive uh, structure, an extraordinary organization, covered large parts of the then known world. And uh, extraordinarily well organized, you know, the Monty Python sketch, what have the Romans ever done for us? And, you know, roll it out, actually loads of things. <laughs> uh, including their taxation. I mean, they were extremely efficient in drawing money out of every nook and cranny to fund the whole thing, the armies and infrastructure and so on. How do they do that? Well, well they, they go for the indigenous people, the natives, and they turn them around. They say, okay, here's the deal. You go to your own, because you know where the money is. You know where the wealth is. You know who's got the money. So you go and get the money for us, you work for us, and the deal is you can pocket a percentage. So the more money you get from your own people, the more money you can keep for yourself. They appeal to the, the kind of greedy. So tax collectors were the, the, the biggest kind of traitors within the community. Hated. 
and greedy. We read in the next chapter, Zacchaeus, he was a tax collector and Jesus encounters him, but it's clear that he's really wealthy and all the people knew where he got his wealth from. Them. What, what, what would be the modern equivalent? It's like maybe in the last century, it would be a Nazi collaborator, someone who, who passes on information to the, to the Nazis. That's, that's what tax collectors were like. Today, it'd be, would it be someone who supplies pornographic images of underage children for other people's enjoyment? It would be that kind of thing. That's the level of dis- gut disgust that's elicited when you hear tax collector in Jesus' day. And the Pharisees. Uh, now, again, we sort of, oh, they're the, yeah, yeah, the Pharisees. But actually, they've been caricatured through the ages. The Pharisees in Jesus' day actually were good guys, by and large. They were kind of, they were the sort of radical reformists. There were a number of, of sort of groups, if you like, within the, the, the kind of religious hierarchy of the day. And the Sadducees were the ones who kind of sold out. They no longer believed in the resurrection at the end of time. They kind of... You know, they were, they were kind of the grey suits of, of the kind of uh, institution. And the Pharisees were much more radical. They wanted to reform all this. They wanted to, you know, refresh the, the religion of the day, to revive God's people. So they were, um, they were devout followers of, of the Torah and of the law. And, and that, that comes out in, in this reading. Um, In this story, Jesus tells, verse 12, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. I do everything I'm meant to do. I'm a good guy. And actually, we can cut through the centuries of caricature. That's how they would have been seen in in the story. Whenever Jesus tells stories, he often has a kind of little twist or a punch. He he kind of wrong-foots you. He thinks, he, t- he starts telling a story and you think it's going to be about this and then he wrong foots you. So we, we, we're geared up to think, yeah, the tax collector's the real bad guy and the Pharisee is the good guy. Yeah. And, and because we know the end of the story, we can see how Jesus applies the twist. So I want to talk about generosity in the context of this story and, and three headings. I want to talk about the source of generosity, the substance of generosity and the secret to unlocking generosity, the source of generosity, the substance. What is, it? what is it? And how do we unlock it, the secret to unlocking generosity? And Jesus touches here in this story on the source. And here's where he begins to turn it for his hearers, the good guy, the Pharisee. Because effectively what he's saying is that the source of generosity is not the wallet, it's the heart. I give a tenth of all I get. And you can kind of tell in this turning point of the story that Jesus isn't impressed. The source of generosity is not the wallet, it's the heart. And it comes out when we begin to see how Jesus depicts this Pharisee. Look how he prays. He's not, he's not really praying to God, he's, he's talking about himself. God, I thank you that I... Dot, 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 dot. I've done this, I've done that. He tells the story, verse 9, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. He's got an open wallet, but a closed heart. He might be technically generous, but he's not radically generous. Whereas the tax collector, 
He, he doesn't even look up. He beats his chest, a, a sign of mourning, even today in the Middle East, bashing the chest. Deep, deep mourning. Deep, deep sorrow and pain. Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And you can hear, even in that prayer, the tax collector is appealing to the generosity of God's heart. Have mercy on me, a sinner. So Jesus is setting up and framing this story and helping us to see that the source of radical generosity is the heart. So just an invitation for us this evening. How's, how's your heart in terms of generosity? We want to be a generous Church. That is to say, we want to be made up of individuals whose hearts are radically generous for God and for others and for the things of his kingdom. That's how it will grow. So the source of generosity, the heart. What's the substance of generosity? I say that Jesus teaches about money in nearly a quarter of all his teaching on the kingdom of heaven. But money is just one form of currency. Currency is, is, is a, just an exchange of value. I give you a note with the queen's head on it and a, a certain value, and I, I hand that to you, and I'll, I'll, in exchange, I'll get some goods to the value of that note I've just given you. So money is just a form of exchange. But there are all sorts of ways in which we can exchange value. There are all sorts of ways in which we can exchange currency, not, not just money. The substance of generosity goes way beyond money. That's why, in a sense, this evening, I don't really want to talk about money. I want to talk about all the ways in which we can exchange worth, in which we can trade generosity. Because, you see, radical generosity of the heart, will, it will just percolate out through the whole of the rest of your life. It will pervade the whole of your life. Radical generosity leads to pervasive generosity. To, to, uh, uh, the, the, the sort of ultimate maturity of, uh, the sort of ultimate mature position of a generous person, they just cannot help but be generous. Slice them open and they bleed generosity in whatever context and whatever the demand and whatever is going on. So like um, physical space, how often do you, um, and I know it's not easy, this is an easier example maybe to give at the 10.30 service, where the sort of family units within our home, but I wonder how, how often we open up our doors and lay our uh, table, dining table, kitchen table, wherever it is, where we open up our fridge or our beer store freely. <laughs> How often do we invite people to, into our physical space or invite people to share a physical space? Maybe it's a restaurant, a cafe, whatever. Come, let's just have a coffee together. Let's have a meal together. No, no agenda, just for the sake of building friendship. You know, the, the word, our English word companion comes from the Latin compound. Companis means with bread. Friendship is, is built around a meal. It's true, isn't it? You sort of spend time, you kind of hang out with someone, but somehow there's something sort of in an extra dimension more enriching about a friendship that's built through a meal. 
Hospitality. How, how, how generous are we with our homes, our houses, our flats? What about emotional space? I mean, you, you know, how many of us say, okay, Tim, I'm very happy to write a check for some D's. But just give me some space. We're a bit too happy to kind of withdraw or withhold ourselves. We don't, we don't give of ourselves, even when we're feeling weary or tired. Even when, and I, I know that this gathering here is weighted towards the extroverts who draw their energy from being with people. I understand for those of us who are introvert, it, it, it's a kind of drain. And yet I'm saying generosity is, will I, will I go the extra mile? Will I, will I give? Extroverts, the flip side is, will you just take some time to think <laughs> before you yabba, yabba, yabba with your next idea? That would be very generous to us introverts. If you could just pause, give it a day or two, and then come out with something succinct that makes sense. That would be an act of generosity. In, whoever we are, introvert, extrovert, wherever you are on the scale, they're, only, they're just preferences. They're only, uh, you know, they're not God. <laughs> but they're indicators. How, how generous are we in terms of the giving of ourselves for others? How is community, we want, to, we want people to get involved and get connected, how is this community going to grow and mature? How is it going to impact the world if we withhold ourselves from one another? How is it that people come in and say, oh, I love this. I, I like what they're saying. Is I, oh, I'm going to take a bit of this. I like this. How can they take if we're not in a posture of giving radically, generously of ourselves? I'm on the welcome team and I've had a grim weekend and a busy week and I just don't feel like, no, sometimes I don't feel like it. But I just say, I, I'm going to. I will. As a, as, a, as a discipline. And the interesting thing is that, that actually God's generosity catches up with my mind. The heart follows. And a radical heart of generosity pervades a life. Bleeds out. One of the things to watch in the whole area of giving, of, in whatever sense it is, is, is the... Um, what is it? It's the kind of fog of entitlement. Do you, do you notice that? Uh, I've noticed that in me from time to time. Is there, uh, yeah, okay, I'll, uh, no, don't worry, I'll take the bank details, I'm going to fill in a thing, I'll give regularly to St. D's, but now, St. D's, you owe me. See, I've given this, so you owe me. Better sing the songs I like. Serve <laughs> 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 so tea the way I like it, or lay out the chairs, or whatever it might be. Do things my way, my time, my... Entitlement. You see, I, I've given, so I'm entitled. It's very subtle. Every now and then, you know, it's good just to pause, withdraw, just take a rain check on your heart. How radically generous are you? Or is there a little string attached? Joe and I, a few years ago, we, uh, with, uh, we were in a group of friends, and um, all kind of young couples. And one young couple we, within this group where we knew just didn't have two beans to rub together. We had no idea how they existed. And so the, the rest of us, we, we decided to be radically generous, consciously radically generous. And we pulled together some money that we had and gave it to them as a gift. 
It was a non insignificant sum of money. And we gave it to them freely. Here, this, this gift. Because you see, we, or I'll speak for myself, I imagine that um, they're thinking, right, good, well, we'll put, we'll put some into the sort of bills to be paid part, and uh, I think I had one or two young kids, so they'll need some clothes, and, and they'd be really sort of sensible about the way in which they'll use this magnanimous, generous gift. A few weeks later, we see them roll up in a brand new car. I thought, oh, that's a, that's a nice new car you've got there. Didn't realize there was anything wrong with your previous car. I said, no, there's nothing wrong with our previous car, but we got this gift of money from some friends, and so we bought a new car. I went, oh, wow, wonderful. And in my, my, my I was going, what? We were getting quite cool. And we started discussing. We got together with the friends. Do you realize? We give this money. We're kind of snared by entitlement. We're going to sort of hold on to them. We're going to sort of control. Yeah, we all generous gift, and then oh look, we'll put you in this box, sit you down there, spend it that way. My heart was not radically generous. I don't know how you describe my heart. It was not radically generous. Entitlement, or just or time. So Tim, yeah, I'll download the Lepton app, I'll find some D's, I'll click on that, I'll give, but just, just lay off, I'm busy. I've got plenty of other things, that please don't ask me to do this and that and the other. One of my uh, roles I do is for, for fun is uh, area dean, and um, <laughs> I... <coughs> Uh, what it means is I sort of go around some of the other uh, churches, just chat to the, to the other leaders and um, kind of just hear how they're doing and what's going on. I was talking to one guy and um, he said, uh, <laughs> and all the churches in our local area, they're all so different. Uh, this is arguably one of the most diverse deaneries, actually, in terms of style and flavor and all sorts. And um, this guy, he said, you know, it's, I, I never have an issue with money in the church. If, if, if the roof falls in, or if all, they, just a few people say, well, how much? We'll write a check. And, uh, but he was telling me, I, I was thinking, wow, how amazing, how wonderful, you don't have to worry about all. But I could tell by his demeanor, he was quite heavy-hearted. And as I un- unpacked it, explored it, but he said, you know, I, I, I feel like saying to them, I don't, want, I don't want your check, I don't want your wealth, I don't want your money, actually. I want you. And the struggle that this guy has, and we all have our struggles in every situation, but this, his particular struggle is he just he feels there's a kind of, a bit like the time thing, it's just a detachment that everyone sort of rocks up and goes away again, and it doesn't feel like there's a sort of community, a body, a, a kind of buying to the vision. It's just, yeah, here's a check, see ya. He doesn't want that. I, what struck me was the emptiness of that generosity. So the source of generosity is the heart. Radical generosity comes from the heart, and that's what flows into every area of our lives. And the substance of generosity, it's way, Jesus teaches about money, but it's way more than money. It's every aspect of our lives. How, how generous are you? How generous do you want to be? How generous do you imagine it's possible to be? Thirdly, the secret to unlocking 
generosity, radical generosity in our lives. There's a verse in um, Matthew's Gospel, and uh, Jesus says, it's very striking, he often says striking things, doesn't he? But he says to the Pharisees and the teachers, the good guys, the good guys, and again, another shocking thing he says to them is that tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. Matthew 21, verse 31. Tax collectors, i.e. Nazi collaborators, kind of child abusers, they're entering the kingdom ahead of you. Oh. He doesn't say that Pharisees aren't entering the kingdom. He's just saying that these guys are entering ahead of you. What's going on there? What's Jesus saying? Have you noticed, linked to that, that in a lot of these stories, this one included, it's the bad guys who get there first. You've got the Pharisee in Jesus' day, Pharisee, good guy. In Jesus' day, tax collector, bad guy. But the tax collector, we, we read it there. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. Well, the next chapter is chapter 19, Zacchaeus, wealthy man. We know how he's wealthy. He's nicked it off his fellow Jews. And yet, Jesus says, salvation has come to this house today. Well, the story is a really well-known story of Jesus tells in Luke 15 about the, the guy, the father, who has two sons. And one son goes off and spends everything, wastes his father's inheritance on, on wine, women, and song. And the other guy's the good guy. He stays at home. He serves the father. And yet, who's the fatted calf killed for? Who's the feast for? Who has the party? The, the profligate guy. How, how come the bad guys get there first in, in Jesus' economy, in the kingdom that Jesus talks about? Well, I think this, this parable kind of fleshes it out in, in these two stories. Basically, in, in these two characters in the story. Basically, these two characters demonstrate the two ways in which it's possible to be God. Jesus, in telling this story, is, the undercurrent is there are basically two ways in which you can be God. One is to be very, very bad. And one is to be very, very good. You see, if you're very, very bad, you are effectively saying, there is no God. God doesn't exist. And if he does, I don't give two figs about him. I'm going to live life my way. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to make up the rules. My time, my place, my terms. I'm just going to totally live for me. In other words, I'm God. I get to call the shots. Very, very bad. That's one way. You just, you just, you, God does not exist. Therefore, I'm God. The other way to be God is to be very, very good. To say, I'm going to demonstrate how good I am. That I'm, I'm, it is possible for me to be good enough for God. I'm going to show you how. I'm going to live my life that way. Now, either directly in the passage or indirectly, you, you see that in these passages. It doesn't explain about the tax collector, but we know from contemporary history and so on, we, we know it's a fact that these tax collectors were greedy guys. They were evil guys. They probably, I don't know, they knew all the different tricks in the book. He's a bad guy, particularly if he's wealthy. 
And the Pharisee looked to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Verse 9. That's how he describes the Pharisee in the story, looking down on it. Why? Because I'm good. Here's the thing about these two routes to God. The very bad or the very good is they both, <laughs> they both fail, aren't you relieved to hear? They don't work. Arguably, the most famous very, very bad guy who, who wanted to be God was St. Augustine before his conversion. And if you ever get hold of a, a modern translation of his confessions, um, it's a relatively small book. You can get it uh, in a modern translation today. And he, he talks in fairly lurid detail about his life and what he thought about his life as a, as, you know, a grade one premiership sinner. He just went for it. He loved parties. He loved drink. He loved women. He would just chase everything. One orgiastic high after another. That was St. Augustine before we probably wanted to call him saint. And, and in his uh, confessions, which is something of a reflection on that, he talks about um, what was going on inside him. And he says, you know, it, it's not what he, what he realizes, having come to Christ, is that parties are good. Don't, you know, and wine, women, and song, all good in their right context and place. But, but what was happening with Augustine and his heart was he was, he was hungering after and desiring them rather than the pleasure that they should lead to. They became a God thing, over and above a good thing. He was deifying them. And so what happened was, because a party or drink or a relationship, whatever, is not God, it could not ultimately satisfy. And he found that the more he chased after the things, the more he tried to make things God, the more dissatisfied he became. It emptied him rather than filling him. And, and in the prelude, it's a, there's a famous line that's often sort of trot out almost clichéic uh, in this prayer that he prays to God. And this is, this is the prelude. He said that I, I, found an, I found an emptiness in all these things. I wasn't satisfied. It left me more hungry until I found Christ. And then he says, he, he says of God, you, you, God, have made us for yourself. And our hearts will find no rest until they find their rest in you. We were designed and created for the Creator. So if I try and satisfy myself, live by my own rules, do my own thing, I will not ultimately be satisfied. Maybe that's the experience of some of, of you today, pre-Christ. Maybe it may even be, as you hold on to trappings of the world, something of that, that gnawing dissatisfaction even now. And essentially it's because there's an element of our rebellious flesh that is wanting to be God by being very, very bad. But, but equally, trying to be God by being very, very good simply leads, as we see in this passage, it's more overt here, to pride. It's either despair, you, you try and be God, you will either lead, it'll either lead to despair or it'll lead to pride. And you, you try, you, you, as an indicator, by the way, just, just a sort of spiritual discipline, as an indicator to, if you like the sort of tightrope of the Christian tightrope walk of the Christian life. How am I doing? Well, how is your heart? Is it, is, it, is it tending to despair and despondency, to sort of dissatisfaction, that gnawing sense, that sort of frustrating, that gnawing sense? Of well, probably we're veering towards the kind of I'm, the, the, the bad way to God. Or actually, is it quite a sort of, I'm, I'm, I'm doing quite well. I'm better than so-and-so. 
Often you'll find it comes in when, you, when you're tempted to compare yourself, particularly favorably with others. Well, okay, I may not be a Saint Teresa, but I'm better than boom, 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 boom. Well, that's pride. That's spiritual pride. Four square. That means actually you think, you know, I'm good enough for God. And you're leaning over the other side. The Christian life is often a sort of, you know, a wobble as we, on a lurch as we walk along the tightrope of the Christian life. Despair or pride. I thank you, God, that I'm not like him and her and them. So why do the bad guys get saved first in, in these stories that Jesus tells? And the answer is, and it's here in the story, because they recognize they need saving. They recognize they're a sinner. Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The good guys don't know that they're sick. That's why they don't think they need saving. Think of, if we think of sin as a sickness, suppose you have an illness and it kind of develops and goes on and on and eventually the illness takes your life and kills you. What was the cause of your death? Was it the sickness or was it the denial of the sickness? Was it the ignorance of the sickness? Kind of a bit of both. But you see the point. And Jesus is telling this story to poke at the Pharisee. You, you think you're good enough. But look at this guy who's so evil in everyone's eyes and yet he's reaching out for the generosity of God. He's reaching to the very heart of God for his generosity because he knows he deserves nothing. Have mercy on me, a sinner, the tax collector says. And Jesus recognizes the transaction that's going on there, the currency that's going on, that this sinner recognizes the generosity of God in his heart and he's reaching out for that generosity. And Jesus says, I tell you, he goes home justified. The secret to unlocking generosity in your heart is to know that you need it in the first place. Final thing. And then I finish. It's just uh, interesting. If you got, if you have the, we haven't got them here. We, if you've got the study Bibles, um, uh, I, I kind of prepare my, my sort of default Bible is a is a NIV study Bible. I really recommend it. It's um, just all the study notes and so on. It's often where I go to first preparation. I've got other sort of commentaries and websites and stuff, and uh, really helpful. The NIV study Bible uh, has told me everything I need to know about this word mercy in verse thirteen. I did a little bit of extra research, and um, there are basically two words that the New Testament uses for mercy. The most common one is um, the word elios, and it means compassion or kindness. But this word here, and it's only used one other time in the, in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 2, is the Greek word helastron, and it's a stronger word in relation to God. It means um, appeasement or atonement for sin. So it's not just God... Can you, be, can you be nice and kind? Can you kind of overlook the fact that I'm a tax collector? It is, oh God, I recognize I am a tax collector. I know I've been greedy. I know I am a sinner. And all I've got to plead on is your generosity. That you will forgive my sin. I have nothing. I have nothing to plead other than your generosity. That's what the tax collector is saying here. 
Halastron, appeasement. It is, it's the recognition that a holy God is offended by sin. And that holy God has done something to appease, to, to deal with sin. Jesus Christ has come and given, what, a tenth of himself? Don't insult what he's done. Jesus Christ has emptied himself of all the riches of heaven. Jesus Christ went through the vulnerability of human birth. Jesus Christ went through anonymity for 30 years, even though, as we now realize, he was God in human form. Jesus Christ was sneered at. He was uh, abused. Jesus Christ, just people would kind of shrug their shoulders and left. He had a few followers, but many more deserted him. He was spat upon. He was beaten, he was whipped, he was kind of done up, strung up by a false trial and charges. He was killed on a tree, a criminal's execution, just so God could be generous to us who have nothing. Jesus Christ gave 100%. If I was a football manager, I'd say he gave 110%. (laughs) So that we could experience the generosity of God. And when we grasp how generous God has been to us, out of his heart, when we grasp what God has given to us, it unlocks radical generosity in our heart, so we pay it forward. In receipt of his generosity, we pay it forward in our time, in our space, in our imagination, in our creativity. And yes, with our possessions and our money. We don't, we don't invite people in the church to give money to the church. We invite people to give money to the Lord. And the church, we will steward the money. And as best we can, we will make more and more of this stuff happen. It's, it's, we give to the kingdom on earth. Not, not St. Dee's Church, Inc. It's not in some Panama account. It's for the kingdom. It's for God's generosity to flow and to pour into the streets and homes and schools and offices and businesses. And the media outlets in our nation. The source of generosity, the substance of generosity, the secret of generosity. That God has been so generous to us. Now, I want to invite a response. And uh, the first response is you don't need to do anything. You may just want to sit, to think, to mull, to... That's absolutely fine. Absolutely fine that your response is no response right now. But I want to give an opportunity for anyone who does want to respond in a number of ways. And if I can just explain, there are, uh, on the tables, there are four pots. And in a tiny, tokenistic way, of the generosity of God, there's some sweets in the pots, and I'd just love you to have some sweets. So that's, that's the gift. Uh, in the pots also are some standing order forms out of these packs. If you would like to respond to the generosity of God by, by giving to his church and his kingdom, we'd love to invite you to do that. Again, a huge thank you to those who already do. I think we have 112 regular givers, and I'm grateful for every single one of you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. But if you are a part of this church, and please, if you're a visitor, just let this wash over you. (laughs) But if you're committing to what God is doing in this part of London, uh, in and through this church, uh, and you want to see more of it happen, then we'd love to give you an opportunity to contribute generously. 
So the standing order forms are there. It's very easy to fill in. You, uh, well, the instructions are on the form. If you are a taxpayer in this country, you can give 25... No, sorry. If you are a taxpayer in this country, the Chancellor agrees to give us 25p extra for every pound you give. And that is if you fill it in a standing order form, which is, sorry, a gift aid form, which is the white form in the buckets. Um, sorry, I'm pointing over there because I can see a bucket. Uh, there are pens in the buckets as well. The final thing is that in the buckets are some post-it notes. And it may be that you already give financially, or you decide you don't, you're not going to give financially to this church, but, but you want to give in some way. You want to exercise generosity. You want to release the generosity that God has released to you. And so what I'm going to do, I've got this, there's this flip chart here, and I'd love you just to scribble on a post-it note what that act of generosity is. Just anonymously, you don't need to sign it. But I'm kind of hoping as an act of worship, we'll, we'll sing in a few minutes, that um, we've got a basket somewhere. Oh, there it is. I'd love if there are standing order forms or gift aid forms, if you'd come, I want to invite you as we worship to come and put a... Um, uh, response form in the in the basket here, and or stick a post-it note on the on the board there. I'd love it if we had two or three sheets of, uh, sort of indications of radical generosity to pervade your life and our life, that that we would be marked as unique and different. I just to, just while you're thinking about that, the, I'm, we're kind of dining on this story. And I hope it's okay to kind of tell it. I won't mention names, but just at the APCM, uh, someone came to the APCM who is exploring um, Christian faith because of a housemate. And they're thinking, you know, wondering what on earth is going on. And of all things, they came to the APCM. I think they were warned off it. Um, I gather that, uh, I think it's Cameron. It's Cameron's here. Cameron sort of said, ah, um, oh, no, you don't want to go to that. It's a boring meeting. <laughs> and, and they came anyway. Um, and I think they were just, we were, I love that Pat just instinctively, he wasn't on the agenda, I just said, stuff that we're going to sing. And that was such the right call. We sang in, in, in response to what we heard God's been doing amongst us. And you know, the spirit, which was thick in this place anyway, just fell, I, th- I think, I gather, fell on this person. Uh, we've now rewritten how we're going to do Alpha. You basically do the Alpha course, but instead of the weekend away, you come to the APCM. <laughs> it's, just, it's, just, it's just far more effective that way. People tasting, experiencing, feeling, knowing, sensing what God is about. Do you want to be part of that? We we, we invite you to get connected here, to get involved here, and to get giving in whatever way, shape, or form God lays on your heart. So just a a few moments um, for you to think in the the quiet and the the silence, to to pray. Just now, you and God, perhaps if the, the band can begin to make their way out, we're going to we're going to respond in song in a minute. And as we begin to sing and worship in song, uh, I'll begin to invite you to, to make your responses. Perhaps if, can the, if you're near a bucket, if you can kind of pass them along, help yourself to sweet, take a standing order form if you'd like to set up giving or increase giving. God is laying on your heart to be generous. If you're a taxpayer, it'd be wonderful to fill in a gift aid form if you haven't already done so. Take a post-it note and write a way in which God is calling you to respond generously to all that he's done to us, for us.